Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. My name is Amit Paul, and um, today's conversation is one that I'm excited about, and, and actually one that I have like a, a slight amount of like performance anxiety about because because um, the person that I'm about to speak to is um, he's sharp. I really enjoy his thinking, and uh, I really enjoy the perspective and the depth of knowledge that you bring in um, to the world, Jeremy Johnson. So. Thank you for being on the podcast with me. Thank you, Amit, for the invitation. It's it's an honor to be here. I'd um, sometimes I do this, sometimes I don't. But I'm thinking like one of the curious things because you've been looking into uh, development, developmental stages, and integral, and um, that is something that I would love to for us to like circle around and dance with today, and and especially for me who's not so deeply embedded in these. I mean, I've, I've come across them. I know I have like a, a, a shallow understanding of these um, theories. I'm, I'm always curious about this sort of um, idea that we progress through stages and then at some point, you know, we get better. And that like that, that whole interaction with progress and developmental stages and how that dance occurs and doesn't occur and how to really understand that. I'd love to kind of um, circle around that eventually in our conversation. That's, that's one of my curiosities, like main curiosities, I think, for our conversation today. But first of all, I'd, I'd love to, I normally do this. I mean, it's partly lazy, but it's also just to be able to let you um, frame yourself in, in whatever way you, you want to frame yourself. Um, so I'd want to start you off on the question that I ask everybody, which is, um, who are you, Jeremy Johnson? Oh, the, these days I'm a writer. <laughs> Um, and, and in a very physical, habitual sense, I've been working on my, my next book. And, uh, in order to write a book for me, it requires, uh, quite a bit of habit forming and reha- reforming of habits. So at the moment I am a writer because I am molding myself into one every day. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I suppose that's a good place to start, but, um, part of my background is, uh, in consciousness studies, I've been looking at this kind of material for over a decade now, which is strange to say. I'm 35. It feels like I haven't been doing this too long. But uh, my graduate uh, program, my master's program was in consciousness studies at, at Goddard College. And I was looking at some of the same thinkers um, really during the Web 2.0 days. So I was looking at tech and consciousness studies and depth psychology. And um before then, I was going to to Fordham University, where I didn't really do anything related, but I did discover Tehard and Wilbur and Gepser and a whole bunch of different thinkers back then. So it's been kind of a long arc since then of trying to unpack what so many of these different thinkers have been articulating about a change in worldview, transformation of consciousness, its relationship with technology and culture, and uh, trying to discern what is going on today in terms of all of the things that are kind of unraveling and reforming all around us and within us in, in this sort of planetary biospheric context. So that's me. I'm a writer though, uh, I would say. Come back down to that. So you're dealing with the small questions? Yeah, they're just the <laughs> small ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you been, um, I mean, ten, so you, you started deep diving into this work when you were like 25-ish, something like that. Has it been yeah, like yeah, a- Yeah, I would say so lifelong sort of what, what, what prompted you to go into it? I was always interested, like, all right. So, so I had to go to a Catholic high school. (laughs) Um, and the rebellious part of me just wanted to 
deep dive into the counterculture and not have anything to do with traditional religious upbringing and the formalities of, of that. So Buddhism and Alan Watts and Huxley and all the kind of countercultural icons and figures were my go-to, Jiddu Krishnamurti, just, just to have my own sense of theology, spirituality, uh, practice, and worldview, I guess, was definitely part of what spurred that on when I was in my teenage years. And, and really, I think when it really kicked in was probably a few years earlier than 25. When I was in undergrad, I had discovered Wilbur, and Wilbur was like a portal to 10, 15 other different writers and scholars. And, and so uh, through Wilbur, I had discovered uh, Sri Aurobindo, I mentioned Teilhard already, uh, Gebser, and just that kind of constellation of thinkers really got me leaning in, in a way that I had before, right? Uh, just the kind of visionary scope that, let's say, like Teilhard had in his writing about the noosphere and planetization. Um, it, it was so intellectually and imaginatively stimulating, right? It just felt like it couldn't look away from that style of thinking anymore after that point. And so... Uh, yes, I suppose that's really when it got started. Um, but but it was always sort of an interest to be interested in counterculture. Again, Krishnamurti was big for me as well, practicing Zen. Um, interestingly enough, the undergrad program I was in had an interfaith Zen program between Jesuits and, and, uh, and Zen Buddhists, which was kind of an interesting hybridization of the two. Uh, and I learned that the Jesuits were just kind of countercultural as well in some in some historical sense. Like Teilhard was a Jesuit. They proudly would display Teilhard's writings in, in their libraries, even though the Catholic Church wasn't exactly happy with their... Teilhard is not exactly on the on the good list uh, of Catholics. He's slowly warming up to that. But uh, so, so at any rate, yeah, I, I think I've just basically always been interested in these topics and um, maybe growing up in a time of like as soon as I graduated in undergrad, it was stock market crash, right? The Great Recession. Um, technology was just explosively transformative. We were hitting Web 2.0. Twitter was new, right? YouTube was new. Um, we were seeing interesting possibilities with flash mobs and Twitter being used for for documenting uh, the, the Iranian revolution or something along those lines. It didn't happen. But still, there was this political, social possibility that seemed to be fermenting at the time. And then Occupy, right? So it felt like it felt like a genuinely transformative time where questions like worldview shifting, uh, new consciousness were totally just aligned with what, what seemed to be going on just in history and in, in events out there, right? So um, that's kind of how I got really into this. Yeah, it's... it's I this is kind of beside the point, but it's crazy how many things have shifted and like how many sort of revolutions have been on that wheel of of change or like how many how many sort of and how the infrastructure has shifted and our understanding of the infrastructure and the and the interaction with the infrastructure as well like these it's crazy how fast it's been like it's it's hard to remember a time before Facebook and yet like I had my first career in music like way before there was anything that was called social media, which is like, it's a little mind-bending when you mm. sit down and kind of look at it. And what I, so if you, if you look at the current moment, like from, from your particular like position in the world, or like where, the way you're looking at it right now, like how would you, 
how would you describe our current moment? What do you what do you see? What are the maybe what are the drivers that you see as the main forces? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a big question. Another big one. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's not so different from 2007, 2008 in terms of the thematics. Like, there is an economic recession bordering on depression, right? So there's economic instability, biospheric problems in terms of the pandemic, right? In terms of biological realities. Um, that's a bit more front and center this time around. And then there's of course, the the sort of superstructure questions everyone's worried about right now in terms of how do we curb carbon emissions and are we really going to be able to slow down and reverse the the anthropocentric uh, climate change, right? So so and we're we're experiencing those as well, just in terms of changing weather, et cetera. So I would say it's climatological, economic, and 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 worldview oriented oriented in terms of we're dealing with a material crisis of worldview. It's no longer something that the counterculture is talking about on the fringes of society. It's something we are now encountering and undergoing collectively and almost universally, right? In very complex ways and in different facets, but we're all kind of undergoing the sort of buckling and uh, an implosion of a particular worldview that has been responsible for this process of globalization, right, for the past four or 500 years. So <laughs> only that, right? But that's like the big kind of uh, generic template picture of what's going on presently. Like a lot of folks call it the meta crisis, et cetera. But I tend to emphasize that even if it is meta, even if it is kind of a hyper object in terms of there being many dimensions, I do think we can at least cohere all of those different facets around this idea of worldview, right? I, the idea of well, what goes into a worldview. It's kind of a gestalt of our sense of self, our sense of um, social identity, our relationship with the world, what the world is to us, our relationship with time, our economic systems, right? So all of that is shifting and unraveling and rethreading itself all at the same time right now. And we, if we were living in, in transitional times, 2008, circa 2008, 2009, then we're living in them even more so today. Like they've, they've merely intensified, maybe nothing of a completely different order except for the, the pandemic kind of coming out of nowhere and, uh, and, and surprising us. But even that is kind of one of these conditions of um, being an interconnected global society, right? And a lot of folks are talking about how it may be related indeed to climate change and changing weather patterns, different types of bacteria or viruses making their way out of areas that they uh, had been kind of enclosed in before, before the climate change or before deforestation. So yeah, we're dealing with planetary realities in a far more intensified way than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. And um, that, that's where I feel like we are. I mean, we all kind of sense that. And then in terms of where we're going, I don't, I don't think those trends are really going to stop. I think they're probably going to intensify um, in, in an unpredictable way, but they're going to continue. But at the other at the other side of this, I would say the more positive side is I, I sense, at least in my circles and, and the communities that I've been observing, and this could totally be a bias of paying attention to all of this and being excited about seeing it happen. But there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of organizing around, okay, well, how do we reimagine things? What would that look like, right? There's all of these intentional communities and the ways 
in ways I think we haven't seen since like the 1970s, this explosion of permaculture, regenerative initiatives, um, the, the kinds of things that we saw back in the 60s and 70s, but a bit more pragmatic oriented and a little bit less idealistic, which is good. Well, that is not always the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but nevertheless, I feel like there's been an explosion of interest in transformational communities, right? And even in terms of the mainstream, like just heteronormative culture, as, as it were, uh, there's an awareness of this. There's, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's book coming out, um, just the Ministry for the Future, talking about basically all of these things and kind of creating a trajectory for how we can steer away from disaster. Being read by mainstream politicians and economists, but even though Robinson is somewhat of a regenerative, social transformative leftist, if you've read his books, he's, uh, he's very much a kind of radical, almost historian of culture and social transformation. Um, so so all, all I'm kind of saying is it's working on us. And I think the fact that the crisis has intensified means um, it has helped to catalyze our imagination in terms of what's possible. Appreciate that. And and if you would like take us into the into the integral lens or like the developmental lens, like the the consciousness, how um, how do you map that? Like how, how do we uh, understand those things uh, together? Yeah, so it depends on the integral lens, as you know. Like my background's um, Gebser, uh, just in terms of the kind of framework that I use. But uh, you know, for Gebser, he understood that uh, really. I mean, and just to give some context, he passed away in the 1970s. So he was really first half of the 20th century kind of thinker. He published his book that Wilbur has drawn from um, The Ever-Present Origin in 1949. So that's sort of the context in which he was writing. But Gebser articulated these major worldview transformations. He called them structures of consciousness. And he saw really the past, I would say 200 years, being a transition between what he calls the mental structure of consciousness and the integral structure. And for Gebser, these are not as uh, particular in terms of minutia. Like we can talk about modernism and postmodernism and metamodernism. And if we're using Gebser's criteria, we might actually think that uh, we might actually understand that those are all associated with this mental structure. And in fact, the mental structure has been sort of in, I don't know, maturation as it were for the past more than 500 years. It's really been around since the Greeks, right? But it's just kind of come more to the forefront as as of late. So that being said, we're in this transitional phase between these different structures of consciousness. And Gebser called uh, the emergent structure integral. And he kind of co coined this around the same time Aurobindo did. And Wilbur was drawing from both Aurobindo and Gebser. So integral seems to be the good word, the, the, the shared word. Uh, now, what that actually means in terms of the, these frameworks, you know, for Gebser, it was the same thing. The, these mutational periods, that's what he called them, a, a time in which a new worldview or a new structure of consciousness was coming online, uh, were extremely destabilizing in the sense that uh, you have an old worldview with its own orientation with self, world, time, space, etc., and those orientations are no longer working. In fact, they're generating a kind of crisis. And very often what we see is that old worldview doubling down regardless, 
becoming inflexible, becoming kind of rigid and brittle, like something that's old and and just, I don't know, like, like an old bark of a tree, right? Or an old trunk that can snap. It's that sort of Taoist phrase, you know, supple and is, is good. Well, rigid is not good because it can break. I mean, is that kind of idea with worldview. When, when a worldview or a structure of consciousness gets um, inflexible, it starts to compound and generate its own, the own, its own conditions of transformation and dissolution. And one of Gepster's famous lines is, you know, uh, much of what we see today is a dissolution, but there's always a solution contained within the dissolution, kind of just a word play there. But mm-hmm. I think it's meaningful in the sense that the conditions that we see the world breaking apart in are very often the a kind of negative image or a shadow side of this new worldview that's trying to come in, right? It's it's not integrated by the old. So it it shows up as as pathos. It shows up as catastrophe or disaster. And so for us, what we're dealing with in terms of worldview shift, we of course we mentioned a few biospheric, economic, the sense of self and world are changing. Um Clearly, what we need to integrate is is a more ecological worldview, just in the sense that what are all the conditions that are pressing upon our entire civilization to be realized? A, a relationship with the biosphere, a different relationship with time, right? And economics, because right now we have a very mental structure of economics that is driven really in one direction. We need the ability to move back and forth and, and handle the kind of complexities of of, and rhythms of the biosphere, right? The kind of ecological loops. So that's on the macro. On the micro, I think a lot of us have experienced this rupture in the pace of life with uh, the pandemic, right? We've suddenly stopped or sometimes we've sped up in terms of being at home and then hustling at home and having to work and work and, and home being kind of blurred. So there's a kind of blurring and melting down of the structures that used to be around us and used to be within us in terms of our sense of self and worldview. And that in turn is catalyzing, well, maybe we shouldn't do things this way. Maybe we can unionize as Starbucks workers. Maybe we need to rethink the whole economy and um, and find different ways in which it can work with the biosphere and carbon sinks, et cetera. So there's a kind of catalyzing emergence of this new worldview, which seems to be related to uh, a much more complex and relational biospheric identity. And I would say that's close or closer to how Gebser understood this emerging integral worldview. Like Wilbur would call it world-centric, um, kind of pluralistic, world-centric. But uh, there's, there's a sense of continuity, right? This is not necessarily pluralistic in the sense that um, some integral folks talk about with like, uh, just different representation, different perspectives. It's not just about difference. There's there's difference and there's relating to the whole through difference, through uniqueness, right? And I think we're really beginning to see that in a lot of the more innovative communities that maybe you're also participating in in terms of uh, um, peer-to-peer and cosmo-local production and regenerative um, learning communities that are trying to pop up around the planet in terms of helping the local while also kind of connected to the global it's that kind of um, new play. I mean, even that is a new image of space, right? It's the it's the completely niche and localized identity, but somehow in that point, in that localized niche, there's interrelatedness with the whole. So it seems to be able to hold both scales, this new worldview, as it were. And again, this is like very latent, right? Like, I wish everyone was talking about this, but obviously this is still something that's 
because that's still nascent in culture. But um, as I was saying, the intensification of these problems and crises seem to be uh, intensifying our own imagination of the possible, which is a good thing. Um, so I don't know if that exactly answers your question about where we are situated within integral the theorists. This is sort of how Gepser would situate us between the, the mental and the integral. Um, and, and that has to do with a different relationship with time and space as sort of like a fundamental thing that Gepser was looking at to understand the transformation. It's really interesting because I think it's, it's, um, what, um, what's, what's coming up to me is like, I mean, yes, in one way we have these sort of spots or like these, these sort of little, I mean, I almost got the, the, the mental image of like a Petri dish where you have like these islands of, of um, the virus or like a virus, a mind virus, if you will, then that are like kind of in this interconnected way. They're, they're acting in this sort of in their inner tribalism, they are reaching out as well, like trying to find, you know, the others, if you will, and, and sort of integrate and, and like work that. And then at the same time you have, it seems to be almost a different, but then maybe one can trust that process, but it, there seems to be that other mechanic, like where there's also like this, um, I don't know if that's a word, but like a silification of people like, you know, similar to the things that's, that's being lifted by the whole, like Trist, the Tristan Harris and like the, their, um, their undivided attention, that, that whole podcast, like that, the whole idea of, of like, we're more fractured than we've ever been. Like the, the fact that we're interacting with these extremely personalized social media channels where we have very few, if no common stories, very few, if no common truths that are carrying through. And we are kind of more, you know, this, this, um, this whole idea of the race to the bottom of the brainstem, if you will. And so it seems to be like these two things are, are kind of the way that I've been feeling them is that they're kind of pulling us apart in a way. Like there, there's less and less that we seem to be able to kind of talk about that are global. Like, you know, as I was growing up, I mean, I'm born, I'm a few years older than you are. I'm born 83. And, and like, at least I have this feeling of like, we were sitting in front of the TV, like we would, I would go to school and we would have the same TV shows that we could kind of talk about because we had these like moments that were like at least, at least national or like citywide or like, you know, generational at least. Um, so I'm wondering like in that this um, complexification or this move in worldview, um, is it inherently so? Like was it, would it have been predicted by Gebser, like by these theorists that this is what's been, been happening? Like there's, there's a pull, there's like a tension that's increasing as we are kind of folding over into something new. Um, or is this uh, unexpected? You know, in some ways it was eerily expected, and in, in particularly in Gepser's work. And I'll, I'll describe why in a moment, but, but part of, so part of the, the, his understanding of the mental structure um, is it sort of comes online, comes to the forefront in the Renaissance period and sort of perspective taking and um, it's a way of standing apart from the world to measure the world, right? It's that kind of Cartesian um, distancing to look upon things and observe and measure and categorize, et cetera, um, just as a kind of fundamental stance in terms of our relationship with the world, right? Like what has engendered everything we've been able to do? It's this new attitude, right? Um, and it was latent in other societies and it showed up in other in other ways in history, but really it was during this um move into modernity that it began to become sort of the the locus or the the prime center in which we organized the universe really right humans 
man particularly became the center, Anthropos became the center, the vantage point in which we could observe the planet. And um, this kind of spatializing, right? Because we use the eye for this, right? We stand apart and we, we, we have the gaze of the eye that looks upon space and measures space. And this has been tremendously transformative for hundreds of years. It's enabled uh, us to think about physics and um, and chemistry, right? That this even think about the innovations that we've seen just earlier on. We had the microscope and the telescope. We had the kind of gazing out at the cosmology, and then we also had looking down into the body and the anatomy of, of living organisms. But there's been a very kind of machinic orientation for that, right? And it's, again, it has unleashed all of these new possibilities and powers. It's unleashed the machine age. It's unleashed um, global capitalism, right? It's the mercantilism, which kind of expanded into global capital and colonization. Um, the industrial revolution has been a part of this process of sort of understanding the mechanics of things and having that mechanical model of the cosmos. And that, in some ways, when we started to do that, at least according to Gebser and his articulation of where we are, we unleashed particular forces and powers that that particular worldview of measuring, standing apart, sort of machinic reality, Cartesianism, couldn't master. It could unleash them onto the world, and it could even sort of ride them into new possibilities, but it couldn't master them itself, right? Our particular worldview couldn't necessarily master the complexities of living systems, although we have gleaned a facet from secular thinking, the empirical scientific method, technology, et cetera. So when we get to the 20th century, and really even before then, Gebster notes like the, uh, the MO for the mental world and the perspectival ways of thinking is to divide. It's to fragment. To fragment is to understand. To, to cut things apart and see how they all work is how all of science works, is how our entire worldview is founded on. And so we get to the 20th century and what do we start to see in terms of this, right? We have machines, which at one point were a way of um, uh, emancipating labor, or at least dreamed to be, sort of running away in terms of our ability to control them, right? We have economic powers that seem to be out of our control. We have technological powers that seem to be out of our control. And then we have a world in which our economic and our technological systems, rather than connecting us, seem to continue to divide and atomize. And this, again, is the kind of the underlying attitude of this structure of consciousness is to understand the world by dividing the world and standing apart from the world, right? And to severing those older forms of consciousness, which now look archaic or, or regressive or supernatural, right? So this, this throwing away any kind of ties and bonds in terms of um, relationship with land and place and or, mm -hmm. or any kind of more imminental spiritual traditions, right? So there's been a loss of um, connectedness to place and roots and ancestors and sort of the non and immaterial dimensions of our being. Um, while there has been this wholehearted focus, right? This vision that goes forward, right? This utopian kind of march of progress that industrial civilization has been fantastic at and also disastrous at. And so here we are in the, let's say we can kind of jump to the near present and think about the same things that social media is doing, right? These are driven by algorithmic capitalist markets, right? That want to incentivize the worst behavior 
But what are they doing? Thematically, they're doing the same thing that this particular structure of consciousness has, is good at and also creates a crisis for itself around, which is atomization, hyperfragmentation. There's a passage or two in Ever-Present Origin it, that is essentially describing this exactly, that, that it, everybody is becoming divided from everybody else. And, and pretty soon, Gepser had in his time the atom bomb to compare it to, sort of the splitting of matter itself. Like everything is fragmenting. And that is the sort of, not that it, it's, it's our end, but that it's the end of this particular worldview. Like if this particular structure, the mental world, continues down this path, then we're just going to see more and more and more uh, fragmentation. And what have we seen, you know, in the past 70, 80 years in terms of that? Um, but you're right, there is this contrary tension that almost pulls us apart too, right? Because there is this sense where, well, technology is not supposed to do this. Like electronic culture was supposed to create the global village, right? It was supposed to find ways to allow us to connect with one another. Um, and I think part of understanding why it seems to do both, but that the ultimately at the moment, atomization and fragmentation seems to be winning out is because we really haven't disentangled the creative forces that are driving it, right? In terms of underlying economics, the worldview of the of the architects of these social structures, right, uh, may not be necessarily integral in terms of their understanding, right? We are we are we ourselves are kind of intermediary beings that recognize these new planetary connective possibilities, but we are coming from a worldview whose MO is atomization. And so we have these strange hybrids of social systems right now that are exploding in possibility, but the old and the new keep intermingling, right? It's that, I just did a podcast on um, just a solo monologue, essentially, um, talking about uh, the liminal web and liminality as as this one of these themes. Um, but I think liminality isn't necessarily a bad word to describe, you know, where we're at. Zach Stein calls it the, the, our time between worlds, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's that kind of interregnum that Gramsci talks about, where the the old is still consolidating its power and the new cannot be born, and all sorts of weird hybrids appear in between. Um, Gebser called it being in a Janus-faced or interim world, right? Where again, it's that same idea. We have revolutionary new possibilities that might be connective, um, but they're, they're, they keep being captured by this older forms, these older forms of thinking and economics and structures of consciousness that are only going to divide, right? That the colonization of space would become the colonization of time into algorithm, the breaking up of the human into essentially monetize, a monetized person, right? That, that the companies can get all their information from and sell products to us. And um, so, so there's this sort of totalization of atomization that social media seems to be creating, which is just part of this, this, this sort of telos of the mental structure's own implosion on itself. So we're dealing with an implosion of worldview in the exact same way Gebser was articulating and some other thinkers as well in terms of the evolution of consciousness. But um, yeah, sorry, that, that was a bit, but that's, that's, awesome. but that's kind of how I understand that particular problem. And, you know, because that's, what's really useful to me is that you're situating it in, in this, in this longer arc, like this tradition of, of, you know, and I mean, there is that, that's the feeling that I've been having as well. Like the deeper I get into these things, like starting out, if, if like, I'm, I mean, I'm just like, I don't know what, like three, four years into this 
space of like, you know, we call it like ecological thinking or systems thinking and, and like all of these like adjacent areas where, where I would characterize this be one of them. And and I find that a lot of the stuff that we are interacting with that's that's sort of visible and that's there in the popular culture that's being popularized um, has this flavor. It, it follows the same logic of like, this is new. This is not something that we have known. These are new dynamics in some way. There's like a, yeah, there, there is that sort of, I'm, I'm, I keep thinking of like the, like I have a I have a dark past in the music industry. And then, so I was part of the music industry when there were still records. Like we were actually selling albums and CDs, you know? And then, and then like we had, so like, I know that when we negotiated our, um, our contracts, like renegotiated the second time, then we wanted to have like a digital clause in there. And the response from the record company, which was universal, you know, they're like, no, no, you don't, don't worry about that. Like, that's not, never, it's never going to be a thing with digital music. And this is like 2000 something, you know, it's like, it's not that long ago. It's like 22 years ago. And and then the, the the sort of the new <laughs> broke and like the, the technology scaffolded like this new technology, but, but it's like, and then we were looking at, you know, it looked like a new thing and everybody was saying, this is a new thing we have to understand. And that, and yet the drivers and the dynamics are, are very much the same. And so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm looking at. And then you have a similar pattern here, although the timeline might be a little bit longer. I mean, I'm, I'm talking at like 20 years of timeline. You're talking about, you know, 500 years of timeline. Um, which is, of course, harder spot, um, and yet I find it sort of fundamentally hopeful that that there is there are these drivers, there are these arcs, there are these patterns that can be discerned with a specific type of thinking or a specific lens that you could sort of employ, and and what I'm very curious about is that the, I mean, of course, there's like okay, there's two lines here, like one one I want to go into that progress um, topic that I've I'm curious about myself, you know. Um, and then the other thing is sort of the, well, actually uh, there's a question here. So we have this idea of like that the, the worldview itself is kind of collapsing uh, on itself in a way, like th this is, this is the arc that we would expect. And like in, in the collapsing, there will be islands of, of the next worldview. That's kind of, you know, it's like the Burkana model or whatever. Like you have the three horizons that are kind of over overlapping with each other. And I'm wondering, is there like. This this uh, sort of what seems to be this material crisis that's also there, like this global crisis, um, the the I mean, with sustainability and with uh, that that don't necessarily relate to sort of consciousness or, or worldview. Um, is that an accelerator? Is that a stressor? Is that a is that something, or is it in these models? Are is is it a part of the worldview collapsing that we are seeing? Like how do we? Is are there two things or is it one thing in these models? If you say, I don't know if you understand the question. Yeah, <clears throat> it's hard to disentangle them. It, it really is because it's it's like maybe from if we were historians of the future looking back, we might say, oh, they're all the same thing. They're all dealing with it. They hadn't invented distributed municipalism or whatever. I'm just thinking of Bookchin, like imagining a mm -hmm. decentralized future. Game B always talks about it, right? Like maybe we'll have some decentralized polity of the future, right? Where like we'll have these like planetary nodes and it will look like the internet. And it's like, oh yeah, clearly from looking back in the year 20, 2020, it's now the year 20, 2500 or something. We can look back at that time and recognize that like 
they had technology for the internet and it was the structure of, uh, of everything to come, but they didn't know how to do it with their government. They didn't know how to do it with their economics. So like, it might be easier to kind of see those big shifts from the future as it were. Mm. But um, in terms of where we are situated in the present, it's, it's totally dis- it's totally entangled. It's all one big complicated hyper object because you have uh, government responses, which are attempting to, respond with laws and jurisprudence and um, contracts and agreements between nations, right? And these agreements between nations are are driven and incentivized by trying to keep the economic system happy. So you don't really want to change that too much. You want to make sure there's enough economic incentive to curb carbon emissions. So we have this sort of glacial move away from the things that we have been doing that are causing problems. And you have a lot of activity from folks who are pushing governments to do that, right? Or they, they feel like this is the way we get things done and transformed. And in some case, in some sense, they're right in, in the sense that, you know, if we look at the Protestant Reformation, there was a lot of battles in terms of worldview and, and, and theological understandings and, and how those theological understandings would shape and reshape Western Europe and reshape a nation or depose a king, right? I mean, these are, looking back on them, we may not find them to be particularly important, but in the thick of it, like, it's very complicated. And then we have folks who are more, I don't want anything to do with that. I want to focus on building a regenerative community, or I want to focus on um, new forms of digital governance that might be like a, a democracy of the future. So we have a whole spectrum of attempts to do to do that or work on that transformation. And I would say, there's an unnecessary antagonism between them in terms of, but that's symptomatic of our time, right? Like game, I mean, even this, like with game A, game B folks, like I think sometimes that's been, it's been a useful way of like pushing off, but it's also been an unhelpful way of thinking like, well, you know, folks who are working in partisan politics, like obviously they're not thinking in terms of how do we transform society from the economics up, but they're an ally, right? There's a continuity here where we're all dealing with this transformation. So, so I would say it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. It's it's entangled. There's continuity between all of it. It's helpful to have discernment in terms of like, if you're working in the partisan political arena, it's going to be exhausting. You're not going to really see too far ahead. You're really in the trenches. And if you're working in a regenerative bioregional project somewhere, you know, it's it's a different type of um, working in the trench, literal trench, maybe dirt, maybe working with plants, but both are important. And I would say the more latent possibilities are obviously in the places like bioregional learning centers that like Joe Brewer is working on or um, technological governance and te- technology and democracy that we see with like a lot of folks in the more on the tech side of things, like um, James Muldoon's recent book, Platform Socialism, for instance. But then we get weird hybridizations like that, like Platform Socialism, uh, which is essentially saying like, hey, let's look at the last 100, 150 years of um, social movements that were attempting to transform our economic system or at least improve it and think about what technology can do to assist that. I would find that to be a helpful hybridization rather than Facebook going, let's create the metaverse and monetize 
your entire consciousness. That's an interesting hybridization too, but it's it's far more monstrous than something that's trying to be a bridge to reimagining things as a whole, right? So those become the questions. What what is a what is a more constructive bridge that serves as a kind of bridge or arc in, to more radical fundamental change? And if it's something more local or specific, like getting a particular politician in or working with, let's say, like uh, the metamodern community and the Nordic society, like those kinds of Bildung projects, which are somewhat, you know, they're they're not fundamentally reimagining the world, but they're using some of the best tools and, and innovations of Western democracies and sort of, I don't know, reined in capitalism as it were. Like those are good transitional spaces that kind of minimize suffering as we were attempting to reimagine everything, right? So that's how I kind of see it. What Everything's at kind of like um, a, a transitional bridge point. And the questions are more, does this help the long term? Does this help us get to a fundamentally different society? It's also helpful, I think, because it it's, takes down the... <laughs> There's been this, and I think, I mean, the the sectiness, I think. I mean, I'm coming out of, of reading... Uh, uh, I, I just lost his name. It's a Jamie Wheels book. Um, Jamie Wheels, yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and he's, he keeps talking about sort of recapturing, recapture the rapture. I mean, that's the t- title of the book, even. And so he's he's just kind of, but, but there's something around sort of, it's, it's useful, I think, sometimes to to de-emphasize the uh, the extraordinariness of our particular moment moment, you know. And I think you know, just because we have at the moment, a, a sort of planetary perspective, like we have a, a sort of the plan, planet is in view, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are experiencing it, and experiencing it any more precariously than you would have had, you would have in, in previous times as worldviews were shifting, as sort of wars were raging or as your sort of environment, your entire world, uh, so to say, although it wasn't sort of the entire planet, your entire world was still sort of shifting. So there's still a liminality to, to those particular periods. And yeah. It's just one it's just a reflection because it's one of those things that I've been struggling with or sitting with. It's like how exceptional am I and how much of this is just my own arrogance, you know, as in wanting to be <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that that um at the forefront of something that's supposed to build a new civilization, you know, if you will. Yeah, it's it's kind of um it's that meta modernized oscillation, right? Between feeling like, oh, this has never happened before and we're aware of it. And so that's kind of that makes us sort of cool here. We're like thinking about a new civilization and well, everyone else is going on with the old one. That's neat. But then also the the other side of that is, oh, this has happened so many times before and you can really see liminality is just like an ongoing theme throughout all of culture. Like the whole history of consciousness and civilization has these liminal points of worldview transition. So so then it's like, oh, okay, so we're not that special. And then and then the 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 embarrassing awkwardness of being in a liminal time is is really doing things with again in these hybridizations like where we're we're kind of awkwardly reimagining the world through the lens and the and the shaping um, kind of ideological and and structural in terms of consciousness forces that is still influence us right like so. Um, you know this is the conversations that I've been having recently with the like liminal liminal folks talking about web3 and and tech innovations mm-hmm. and underneath some of the some of the discourse are particular worldview recapitulations right of of the old and i'm like we really have to be 
stopping that. And the only way to do that is just to be humble enough to kind of go like, we're probably, um, the, the old worldview and old structures of thinking are probably piggybacking into our conversations. And so just being aware of that, it requires a kind of um, capacity for self-criticism. Um, and that's not always embraced in these communities, which want to be heroic communities, right? Heroic communities of belonging. We have like two problems, right? Like one is um, we are deeply atomized. And so to have a community, a, a kind of shared vision for the planet is so deeply intoxicating and fulfilling. It's meaningful, right? Um, and then again, the heroic side of it is like, then we kind of start to feel a bit inflated about ourselves and like, hey, yeah, like we're, we're the ones doing this. And so, and so that's always something to kind of keep in mind, just in terms of empathy, right? Like totally get why we would do that because we're an alienated culture, everything's fragmented, and we're longing for a place of belonging. And so when we find these communities, of course, we're going to be over committing to them, right? And, and inflating their sense of importance. Totally understandable for the context that we're, we're coming from. But just keeping that in check, I think, is it's probably a good idea. Um, because we look at like the history of the 1970s communities, uh, they were kind of saying the same thing. And, and where are they today, right? So let's be, let's be a little tempered, right? I enjoy that. And I think, I mean, that's also because I've I've listened to a few of your sort of both discussions and, and reviews and, and like picking up parts of the book. I'm, I'm seeing it behind you. That's why it came up. The, oh, yeah. The yeah. dawn of everything. Um, and I really enjoy um, the way that at least that I am able to understand your your arguments there, like with, with regards to that, that there is like, it's not just structure. It's not just materialism. It's not just, you know, but it's also like all these other pushing off points that we are creating our identity from, like the entire context um, is identity creating. And so like, I mean, they're speaking a lot about sort of schizogenesis. It's like the, the, this um, reactionary force. You're seeing something and reacting against it. And hence you are creating your own culture as a reaction um, to that. And I mean, I'm also like, at the moment, I'm thinking a lot about organizations and like, what is the new organization? And, and we are uh, starting a company and, and we want to kind of draw upon, you know, like these, both the governance structures like sociocracy and holacracy and so forth, but also like take seriously, like the whole Laluic like argument of like, okay, so what are these organizations? Uh, what are the drivers in the organizations? How can we, you know, but then somebody like a friend of mine who's deep into the agile community. I mean, he, he just pointed me to, he's like, you know, like Teal. Teal means that you can kind of pick and choose. It's kind of like the, it is like the the sort of the Keegan-esque as well, sort of, again, like developmental. The last part is like you have access to all of these tools. We can kind of reach into the toolbox. We have a decent understanding of like what, what these different tools are and roughly how they are and like roughly what the results are. And we can be pretty agnostic about the tool itself and, and instead see like, does it fit with the use? Like just... And, and, profound understanding that that each tool can you know it's that old analogy of like you can kill somebody with a hammer you can build a house like how do we actually put it to use you know which is flattening the whole but but it's interesting to think about that and then to think about this theme of progress as well because it seems like we're sometimes like overusing the new the newest tool like the the music analogy again would be like when auto-tune showed up again, like roughly when I, like towards the end, like, you know, and you did the sheer thing and like, we were just overusing auto-tune like crazy. And then after a few years, it was like, 
this thing that everybody's using. It's everybody's absolutely still using it, you know, auto-tuning the shit out of everything. It's just that we've been so skilled about using it now that it's just like you you can't really hear it, you know? You you wouldn't perceive, you don't know unless you actually know. Like if you're not in the know, you won't you won't be able to see it. And I have a similar feeling at the moment now when we're like co-creating where it's, it's co, co-intelligence, co, everything is co, you know, we're supposed to do everything together, um, you know, and hierarchy is bad and, and co-creation is good. And, and then we're moving from there. And it comes with a lot of baggage, I, I find. And I'm, so I'm just wondering about this. Um, we have a trend, we have a direction for sure. And, and then the question that I'm sitting with is like, how do we know that it's progress? Like if we, if we assume that progress means things getting better, not just movement, but like, what is, what is actually sort of, how can we understand or how can we discern which is what? Like, Yeah, good question. <laughs> the, the, the million dollar <laughs> question in, in these communities, <laughs> which is, speaking of fragmentation, this, this, this topic has been just tearing apart so many of the, the online integral and metamodern communities, uh, or uh, dividing them at least, um, around the dawn of everything and then uh, more locally, Nora Bateson's um, developmental models are bullshit, right? Uh, and, and colonizing that that whole thing that that happened uh, last summer in 2021. So, yeah, it's it's a complicated question. And I, you know, I've really enjoyed Zach Stein's position on this, which is we can probably talk about progress and development at a much more regional level of history, like tracing the way particular. Um, almost bioregional clusters of societies, right? Like let's say a particular region of Western Europe and how it was influenced by particular sets of ideas, let's say Bildung, right? Um, the more Nordic societies, we could say maybe they have made particular progress and development in really kind of understanding a, um, a social system that works fair, fairly decently, right? Um, and might be advanced and might have mastered certain processes that other regions of Western Europe, or let's say the United States is still very much like not working out at all or, or kind of going backward from. So we might say that we might say progress, uh, is much more locally situated. It's much more almost bioregional, and it's, it's much more particular and we can't really talk about it in a sort of universal scope. Now at the same time, uh, uh, Zach called it kind of a ratcheting up, right? So we have this sort of complexification and glow, the growth of global society, right? From the first agricultural societies all the way into today, we've had this population explosion. Uh, you know, Teilhard talked about this. Just physically, you could see humans in kind of in, encapsulating the world and in like a filament of thinking and infrastructure and technology. Physically, materially, this has happened. How do we understand that? Is that progress? Well, I think, again, we, we have to... On the one hand, decenter, and this sounds kind of weird, decenter progress in the sense that progress in relation to what? Um, I think we have to relativize progress and understand the conditions of what is exactly progressing. Like, okay, technological mastery of the planet, maybe. We're not very good masters of it right now because of everything we're dealing with, but we've seemed to have had this direction of Again, technology, population explosion, agriculture working fairly well for that. So, so we've had certain directions. Are those directions universal? Probably not. Um, is this the way civilization had to go to get to where we are? 
Probably not, right? However, that this is the way things have gone. And that's kind of the argument I get from Graeber and Wengro as well. Like so many other forks in the road that we could have gone down and did go down. If you look at like North America and the Western Hemisphere, which more often than not walked away from uh, agricultural states uh, and advanced and developed uh, in different paths, pushing off of those experiments. So is, is it linear? No. Um, is, is development much more of a relational, situated, localized kind of thing that has to be kind of talked about in that situated way? Probably. <laughs> um, that, that for me is, is the most coherent sense of what we might mean by progress or why a particular society progresses in a particular direction and matures and develops its own kind of identity or mastery of a particular um, social form of organization or worldview form. That seems to make sense, but is civilization um, a progress away from pre-civilizational ways of being? I don't know about that. And in fact, in many ways, as we know, with a lot of indigenous scholarship, not just Graeber and Wengro, right? Like we know that indigenous societies have forms of technology. They have their own kind of ecological knowledge. It's called um, traditional ecological knowledge or tech uh, and so they were working at a level of, I mean, essentially, and again, a kind of a negative image of us, or we're the negative image of them. Uh, they had an influence on the biosphere in ways that we do not. They knew how to work with controlled burns and um, um, sort of horticultural directions for entire forests, right? So there's there's a way of almost like from a modern scientific technological viewpoint, we would look at that and say like, hey, they engineered the Amazon rainforest. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> but, you know, like that, we find that impressive because we don't even know how to do that at that kind of scale. And yet they were not a technological um, way of living, right? They didn't live like that. They lived more animistic and they had different ways of thinking about things that weren't necessarily the empirical scientific method. And yet they found ways of working with the planet at a planetary scale, right? Localized, but at a planetary scale. Um, so what's progress? You know, it seems that, again, this is how I've been saying it in my book, it seems complementary. There's different forms of complexification and progress and mastery of the world, just as there's different forms of worldview. Maybe the big question is, can all of them cohere so that we're not just the civilization story, but we're the humanity story, right? Where that indigenous complexity and whatever civilizations have been doing for the past 10,000 years don't overtake one another necessarily, or civilization doesn't build on top of the older, but that they find some kind of symbiosis together, that civilization can fold back into relationship with um, our planetary context, as I think we need to do today, right? So even that is sort of a decentering of progress and a decentering of civilization from this sort of meta narrative about are we advancing or are we not? Like, we could be, you know. It's kind of like Gandhi says: it's a good idea. Western civilization is a good idea, or civilization is a good idea if it can be folded into relationship with the biosphere. And I think we have a lot to learn from the past because you're mentioning that, like. Maybe there's technologies that indigenous societies use and techniques that they understood that we actually kind of need them to be leading the way on in terms of planetary custodialship, right? And find a way to make that work with 7 billion people, which is like a tremendously 
just a stupendously difficult order of challenge. Um, so what we really need is a time of profound experimentation and throwing away the sense that technology is going to solve the way forward. Throw out the way forward. Like the planetary is is all directional. Like you mentioned omnidirectional in our in our email correspondence. It's like if that's progress and cool, that's good. But but not this whole let's advance forward to the next high technological stage. That seems to be what's been creating this crisis in the first place. I like that, and I've I was like I was listening to you, and you you coming kept coming back to the term of mastery, and I was like, hmm. And then I realized in my own system that mastery has like some sort of implied separation in there that, that there's like this aboveness quality to to uh, mastery and and that's not that's not at all how I hear you use it as I'm listening to you speak. It's more it is that folding into and that embeddedness into the system and that that um, more sort of participatory um, lens. As in I don't know I mean I think. Tyson Juncker-Porto, when he was on, he he said, I don't talk about Schrodinger's cat anymore. I talk about Schrodinger's wombat. And, <laughs> and you know, if you're from an indigenous lens, we absolutely know if that wombat is alive or dead inside the log, you know, because we can tell from the from the system around it, which I thought was, you know, it's, it's a fun, it's a quip, um, but it's still a, a fun sort of, it's similar to what I'm hearing you speak of, is like that that folding into and that move away from sort of, optimization of, of single variables where it's more, or not optim- maximization rather of sim- sing- mm. single variables where it's like it's more an optimization problem where we need to look at um, a number of different parameters and a number of different things that are. But what I'm, what I'm still curious about that in, in through this sort of complexity lens, I've, I've been, um, I stumbled back into like Dave Snowden's sort of quadrants and, and you have the, the the sort of the complicated, the complex, and the chaotic, and, and you have sort of different uh, recommended paths forward. So in like in the in the complicated, you you can kind of plan. It's it's not that you know. In the second part, in the in the complex, you are you're stuck in sort of a probe sense respond type um, type, and and then in the chaotic, you are in an act sense uh, sort of <laughs> respond rather. So you do have to move in order to create some sort of feedback and see how systems and how responses come along. And it has me, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll just sort of leave that, leave that as, a, as a hanging reflection. I don't have a question on, on that, but I think it's, it's interesting to, to overlay on what you were talking about when it comes to the, the progress. Like there is, in order to move, we need, we need to actually move in order to assess, be able to assess, to have something to assess, uh, if you will. And then, of course, it's it's a there's this practice that's needed. I think of like zooming in and zooming out, like you're pointing to. Like, where are the? Is it bioregionally? Is it personally sustainable, good, beneficial? Is it you know? And, and how far out do we go? Like, how do we make that sort of? It's the shifting in in space, and then it's the shifting in sort of perspective of like bird's eye view all the way down to like the microscope, like from the telescope into the microscope, and and it, it feels harrowing in a way it's almost incapacitating i would say sometimes with uh, i don't know how you think about that like how do you how do you navigate that yourself so yeah great that's a great framework from snowden as well uh the the sense of i mean it's all happening at once right the the chaotic the complex and the complicated and um we're dealing with planetary complexity we have built 
civilizational complication, right? Which is also maybe part of that complexity. You know, where do the two, some some folks I know kind of fall on the, the side that civilization isn't actually complex. It's, it's complicated, but it's not the kind of complexity you see in a living system. Um, it could become that way, but we, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? And I'm kind of on the fence with that, but, uh, and then the chaotic, we have to do something, just like see how things respond. Um, all of them, I think, are necessary. And in many ways, uh, we part of the, the cohering way of feeling like it's not overwhelming is, is knowing there is at least a kind of um, redirection that this new structure is inviting us to, to begin to take, which is even though we kind of are holding the global and the planetary and the local together in terms of those two scales, there's a root we start from. And I think that root is finding a way to become more in relationship with place, with self, with each other, with the world in our immediate context, like in terms of the bioregions that we live, the relationships that we have. Um, finding relationship, I think, is our biggest, I mean, just that that's the word it comes down to, right? I think this is very much what Tyson talks about too, in terms of Western and the global systems problem. It's out of relationship, right? It's out of context. And that's the hardest thing to, to find our way back to. But I don't think we solve any problems until we start to have a relationship with the planet, with each other, with living systems, with the bioregions that we're in. If we're not acting from there, then we cannot be planetary. You know, it's, it's cosmolocal, yes, both in terms of oscillation, but we're human and human beings are very good at situated cognition and place-based cognition. We've moved away from that. Either if we see it as progress, then, you know, Gebser has this funny quip about um, any progress is, sure, progress, but is progress away from a lot of these older relationships. So like he wasn't being like bemoaning the fact that it's happened or being a traditionalist. He was just saying like, let's just call it what it is. And so what what does distancing and separation afford us? Okay, well, it affords us cool things like scientific method and, I don't know, the modernist novel, I don't know, civil, like modern civilization as it is. So interesting things can happen when we lose relationship um, but that is not a sustainable place to be. Like, again, is that kind of folding back into relationality, I think, is our, our biggest crisis, ultimately, in terms of spiritual worldview, and then in terms of um, working with the complexity of the biosphere. Being in relationship with it is, is the foundation of any kind of work that we do. So for me, like, yes, that's daunting and dazzling and, like, so complicated in, in terms of thinking about all of the the, the civilizational civilizational inertia that pulls us away from relationship and decontextualizes us and drives that decontextualization to compound itself. We're dealing with that every day, right? I mean, any kind of like just the modern pace of life, right? Just being, needing to make money, you know, there's, there's a clock time that we have to be forward facing about and be thinking about so often. So like our, our consciousness is obviously colonized by that. But any kind of turning away from that, any kind of cultivation of relationship with place, any kind of slowing down, just on a human level, right, at a personal level, is a kind of radical act in a situation that is so totalizingly decontextualizing, right? Um, so that is how, in some ways, I have solace, because otherwise it would be a completely totalizing situation that's too complicated. But I do think 
the way to respond is to is to turn back towards our own humanity, turn back towards the present, right? Towards place. And um, it's something Le Guin in her essay, California is a very cold place to be. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a weird essay, but it's about yin and yang, hot and cold, warm and cold. Um, and she talks about how we've had so much yangtopia, the traditional utopia that sees progress as forward and it's directional. And we don't have enough yintopia, which is indirect, mercurial, messy, slowing down, feminine, dark, you know, not Apollonic and bright and technological, but the other, like we've gone so far in this one way of thinking with Yang that like what we need is a reversal. And in many ways that does look like what it looks like. What Tyson says, like, get back, how do we get back into relationship? That's a kind of reversal. But as I'm writing about in my book recently, like reversals can be back leaps into the future too, right? Like to go back is to go forward. And that's something um, Le Guin talks about in her essay as well. So I would say that's a good orientation for me. And that's what I keep coming back to. And when I get asked a question like this, because it does feel so overwhelming, right? And even that answer is not necessarily like an easy solution. How do we find relationship again? Obviously, there's probably so many ways for that. Ancestral, temporal, gardening practices. I mean, it could be a plethora of different possibilities, but I think the general worldview reorientation is let's get back into relationship with the planet, with ourselves, with land. Um, and from there, see where the empirical, scientific, Cartesian story fits in in relationship, but it doesn't hasn't found its place yet. Um, it doesn't have a home yet. We have to kind of turn back towards the planetary, turn back towards home in order to find where civilization is going to fit in in this story and if it will fit in, right? There, oh, there's a couple of things that like bubble in me um, as you say that. I, I really appreciate that because it's, there is that sort of, it's a nice sort of elaboration of, of the, the, a nice explanation of, of why um, it is important to, to both slow down and stop and turn back, sometimes even take a step back, you know, um, in, in, in these types of times. And also that we can perhaps, as far as we're, like, we're decentering progress is, is one part of the thing, but then it, there's also this idea that maybe we can, we can recenter or upcenter or at least bring towards center um, this this uh, negative or the negative principles rather than just the positive, like the the phallic, rather sort of bring back the. That's probably also what's happening with this whole call back to the feminine, to that, to those feminine negative principles that we are, you know, that's kind of bubbling, like the dark and the and also like all the shadow work that's bubbling, like also the, the, yep. there's so many um, trends that are pulling in these directions, organically, so to say, and then becoming visible to more and more people in more and more contexts and. I actually took sort of speaking of of the center or the I um I was uh, in the um immunity to, in immunity to change framework I don't know if you're familiar with it it's Robert Keegan's work uh, oh. from from Harvard they're doing like both the sort of their cultural development of organizations and I mean they're doing it as a coaching methodology for individuals and so forth and I haven't really I've heard a lot um and and then I took like a three-day intensive training last week. And it's kind of funny because the whole thing kind of boils down to identify your assumptions and then create them, make objectify your assumptions and then start testing them and see if the if your assumed hypotheses of what will happen as you're testing your assumptions actually falls true, like becomes true. And then from there you can actually start really changing 
things, you know, which is, again, like this is part of a lot of wisdom traditions. It's part of, of something that um, it, it, it's well known, I would say, like in the personal development community. And like, it's almost well known in the scientific, it's in the scientific method. It's in a lot of these things. And yet it's hard to grasp that. And, and in a way that's where, I don't know why, but my mind went there as I'm hearing you speak. It's like, you know, take a look, like look closely, both at the world through the lenses and then also at the lenses that you keep on, like remove your glasses and, and look at your lenses that you're wearing. And then as you identify these assumptions, as you identify these lenses, can we start testing? And like, you know, it doesn't have to be big movement. It doesn't have to be sort of heroic or, or sort of, we don't need to sort of step up on the, and, and try to change the whole world at once, but we can kind of destabilize, uh, you know, each, each single thing. And then if we can move from, what is it again? Wheel, but like we can move into sort of Kronos movements, like from from the then then and and realizing that we're still okay as we move into this more sort of eternal, less um, time clock time bound moments. Um, that might be enough to like really start loosening up the ground on which our worldview stands on, and then we can have more of a Graeberian, I mean with or without the political project, but like still like the Graeber Wengro type project of like, hey, there is, there's pleasure here. Like we are bound material, by material conditions, but there's also a possibility for us to recreate and to create and to play um, and to dance, if you will, or, or however you want to situate that. Um, yeah, that's really beautiful. Is there anything that you want to say, what that wants to be said? I'm, I'm looking at the time and, and I've, I'm, you've been very generous with yours. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. Is there something else that wants to be said? Thanks, Emmett. I, I don't know. I, other than um, I think you're you're putting your finger on it very very clearly, right? Like the move is is um, it's pretty. It's it's a relief in a way. You don't have to have the world on your shoulders. Like there's no like. I'm I understand the desire to be heroic, and but small is heroic, right? Um, like we look at. I'll just give an example. The most lowest hanging fruit is uh tolkien's lord of the rings like literally the hobbits are the heroes the invisible the small doing what they can they're not the kings they're not the armies right the 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 movement of the world is is done by little hobbits in the lord of the rings so so if we're going to take heroic metaphors we should pick the ones that really understand that right for our planetary context so the heroic little things are really what we ought to be focusing on in terms of worldview shifting, developing relationship, engaging different forms of time. Um, because, I mean, like th that's the lesson of that story too, right? Like the ring of power like creates these totalizing visions. There's a, there's a moment in the book where Sam, Samwise puts on the ring um, when he's in Mordor and uh, separated from, from, from Frodo and uh, his vision because it gives everybody this sort of like sweeping vision of how they could be in totalizing power. It's it's adorable in the sense that he's a gardener. And so he envisions just the sweeping taking over of all of Middle Earth will be his garden and he'll grow all the great plants and everything will be beautiful. And that's his heroic vision. Um, and like, again, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of cute and, and endearing that he had that. But the idea is like, what does he really need to do in that story is, is go back and regrow the Shire because it's been industrialized by, by Sharky and, and um, Sauron. Like small is heroic, right? 
uh, small is is planetary. That's the that's kind of the lesson. We've been going in one direction, bigger, better, more top down. Like civilization has really enjoyed doing that. And again, that reversal that so many of these cultures are talking about, like Lalu, organizational. Web3, like decentralization. But that, what does that actually mean? Be in relationship, localize, be small. That's good. That's a really good thing. We need more people who are rooted working together relationally. Um, we need more of those relationships built because the biggest problem right now is that fragmentation. Um, so I think that would be one of the most powerful moves we could do. And in some ways, it's it's human-sized again, um, that the human can hold the planetary. Like we have it in us. Um, I think the problems come when we we stick too much into the the old worldview, the mental, in the sense of like trying to hold it all in the head, right? The top down view. Um, it's just it, we won't it won't fit there, right? I mean that's the whole problem when you try to fit it there. The world kind of bursts apart, like like Athena bursting from the head of Zeus, right? So we do need to kind of go back in, and it doesn't mean that technology and Futurist stuff isn't is going to go away, um, but I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as um, heroically sized. You know, the ring of power has inflated our sense of what technology is going to be doing. Right? I keep going back now to the Lord of the Rings metaphor, but it's very apt, and it was, uh, it is about that. You know, in its own way. But that's another conversation. But so yeah, just um, I guess that'd be my my advice or or my last word here about. Um, Turning back towards the small, towards the present, um, towards the non-human, uh, so we can find our our place and be human again. Actually, that we find it through the non-human and through the small, and we find the planetary through the local, and that's a good direction to take. However, we find it. Thank you so much. And if people want to interact with you, find you, hear more of you, um, take your course. You're you're out with a wonderful course. Um, and you want to. Give some, give some hints, leave some breadcrumbs. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We just, we just started on, on Sunday. Um, so there's plenty of time, uh, uh, started February 20th and, uh, it's seeing through the world. You can just Google seeing through the world or follow me on Twitter where I've been posting about it all the time. Um, JDJ underscore rights. And I'll give you my, my Twitter info. Yeah, I'll link, you can also go to mutations.blog and, uh, uh, you can follow Mutations Podcast, I suppose, anywhere where podcasts are syndicated. Just type in Mutations, and I'm, I think I'm the only one called that. So, so yeah, thank you, Amin. It's been a it's been a pleasure today. Yeah, for me too. Thanks a lot.